Okay, good morning. Well, we're, we're doing a series on Daniel, and I want you to imagine just for a moment, if you actually had the opportunity to have a sit-down, face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball conversation with Daniel. You know, it could be over a cup of coffee, a cold beer, on your back porch, however you want to do it, but you were just asking him questions, getting to know him. And at some point, you probably want to know about his upbringing, his hometown, Daniel, tell me about your family. Do you have siblings? Tell me about your mom and dad. And and as you would ask questions, at at some point, you might see him get a little misty-eyed, get a little emotional, and you might lean in and say, Daniel, have you been through something really hard? You might even have the audacity to ask, Daniel, tell me, what, what is the most adverse situation? What is the most traumatic moment in your life? And Daniel would probably gulp. He'd take a deep breath. He'd look in the eye, and he would just say simply, the exile. The exile. The exile was the most traumatic moment in my life because I was ripped from my home. Babylonian soldiers kicked down my door. They separated siblings. My parents were beaten. I was separated from my family. Next thing I know, I'm in chains and I'm being marched to a whole nother country, to a foreign land. And now, each and every day, I have to live in a foreign land eating unfamiliar food, talking a foreign language, and every day I'm reminded that I'm not with my family, that I'm not in my beloved country. So just to give you a little context about this exile, this was a pretty unique exile. Babylon was a world power, and they were exiling different nations, but they knew they couldn't exile the entire nation of Israelites. So instead, what they decided to do is they would select kind of the best and brightest, they, they would choose the, the, the high schoolers, the college students with the highest leadership potential. They wanted to train them, re-educate them, and then send them back to their country. So this is what we discussed last week, and Pastor Andrew talked about how Daniel and his friends, they moved to Babylon, and their whole lifestyle was changed. They changed their food, they changed their language, they changed even the literature that they read. And they even went so far as to change their very names. Because ultimately what Babylon was trying to accomplish is they wanted to see identity change. Deep identity change. And so the Daniel that we're reading about this morning is teenage Daniel. This is high school Daniel. This is like, I just got my driver's permit, a little bit of acne Daniel, okay? This is not like, you know, uh, middle-aged Daniel by any means, But it's really interesting, they even change his name. And and the name change really describes kind of the conflict, the crux of this whole book. Because Daniel has a Hebrew name, and his name means Daniel, or God is my judge. And when they change his name, they change it to Belteshazzar, okay? Another hard, complicated name to pronounce, but Belteshazzar means this, protect the king. Do you see this? Do you see what Babylon is trying to accomplish? And really, this is the bottom line of the whole book. If you want to be like Daniel, if you want to be a faithful exile, really what it comes down to it is who's your judge? Who's your king? Is it the God of the Bible or is it someone else? And so the example that we find in Daniel is they can change your diet, they can change your education, they can change your name, but if Jesus is your foundation, they can't touch your heart. So here's what we see in Daniel. It's possible to live in a pagan land, to be surrounded by idolatry, and still remain faithful to God. 
So we're going to read Daniel 2 right here, and we're going to see what sets Daniel apart as a faithful exile. Read with me in chapter 2. It says this, In the second year of, of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you don't make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid to ruins. Now let me just make one quick note. In verse 4, the Chaldeans, these are almost like magicians, they say to the king in Aramaic. This is actually what makes the book of Daniel unlike any other book in the Bible. The text actually changes languages. Until this point, it's been written in Hebrew, and that was the native language of Daniel. But from this verse on, for the rest of the book of Daniel, the language changes to Aramaic. Did you know this? This is good Bible trivia. Uh, you, you can stump somebody one day, but Daniel is the only book of the Bible with two languages. It is a bilingual book. And here's why. The language that everybody could speak back in the ancient Near East was Aramaic. It's what later became Latin and what is English today. But there's a point, and this is the point that Daniel is trying to make, even with the language he chooses to write this scripture, is that this book is not just for Jews. This book is not just for the church. It's for all nations. It's for all peoples. It's for the whole world. So this is now a new language. We'll jump over to verse 10. Verse 10 says this, The Chaldeans answered the king, and they said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or Chaldean. The, king that, the, the thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was very angry and very furious. And he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So we're going to make three points this morning. Three characters, really. First off, we meet an anxious king. Second, we'll meet a bold exile, and then finally, we'll dig into this dream, and we'll be confronted with an unbreakable stone. So let's start with the anxious king. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Have you ever thought about this, that very often those who are at the top of the game, it could be in the business world, it could be athletics, it could be celebrities, they're actually marked by deep anxiety, because very often anxiety, it can drive us towards success. Anxiety can be the cause, but also the effect of those who are at the very top of their game. And so very often people are actually driven, motivated to hustle and to grind and to make it to the top because they're trying to overcome some deep-seated anxiety. And then they finally make it to the top, and guess what? There's even more anxiety because the higher you climb, the bigger the fall. And very often when you make it to the top of your corporation or your social circles, or your country club, you realize you become the object of jealousy, there's more competition, and you even have more to lose. I mean, were some of you scratching your heads watching all these SEC football teams play yesterday? You're like, come on, Georgia Bulldogs, we're supposed to blow out everybody. It's hard to stay on top. 
And Nebuchadnezzar is on top. He's the king of Babylon. And do you see that he's marked by all of these different negative emotions? He's disturbed. He's anxious. He's furious. He's enraged. He's having trouble sleeping. And here's what I want you to understand. We see this in Nebuchadnezzar's life, but also our own life. Our negative emotions reveal our idols. Our negative emotions reveal what is the foundation of our lives. You can think about it this way. Our negative emotions are like the check engine light of our soul. So think about your check engine light. Does anybody have their check engine light blinking on their vehicle right now when you crank it up? Yeah. And what do you do when you see that check engine light? First off, you try to ignore it, okay? It's no big deal, okay? It it, it must be a mishap, okay? There's nothing really going on. But we all know this. The problem isn't the light, Okay, the light is an indicator. The light is a sign. And what the check engine light is designed to do, it's reminding you to go to the mechanic. Get this thing checked out because there's a problem. There's an issue beneath the hood. There's something misaligned. There's something not working properly in this engine. And our negative emotions have the exact same function. Whenever you get anxious, whenever you get angry, whenever you get bitter, Whenever you get depressed, okay, your emotions are indicating, revealing to you that there's something misaligned beneath the hood. You're not worshiping properly in your heart. And anxiety, in this case, always has a future orientation. What it's revealing is that there's something in your life that you care too much about. You overvalue, you overdesire, and it's a little bit shaky. It's unstable. It's in jeopardy. You might lose it. And so that's why we start to get anxious. Something means too much to me, and I'm worried, I'm anxious that I might lose it. And this is why so many people in this church, but also in our nation, are marked by just a general, low-grade anxiety. One commentator puts it this way when he talks about sort of the um, American spirituality. He says, American spirituality finds its identity in three different places. What we do, what we own, and what people think of us. Did you get that? What we do, what we own, and what people think about us. And here's what those three things have in common. They are unstable foundations. They're extremely shakable. So if you find your identity in what you do, well, guess what? You can be hired, but you can also be fired. Build your foundation in what you own. Well, your car is only going to depreciate. Your house is going to fall apart. Those sneakers you got last week, they're only going to go out of style. Okay? Everything we own, eventually we're going to sell it in, a, in, a, in, in like a garage sale. Okay? And then finally, what others think, or our opinion, our reputation, it can rise and it can fall. And the point is this, whatever you build your life on, it could be your family, your bank account, your good looks, your position in the company, your GPA, your handicap at the country club, they're all, as we'll see in just a moment, they're all built on clay. They're breakable, they're unstable. Let's go to the next, uh, let me me give you just two examples of this, of just anxiety. Uh, I'll show you a quote right here. Uh, This is a quote from Madonna. Okay, Madonna is like the, the Taylor Swift of the 80s for the young kids, okay? And here's what Madonna has to say. She was at the top of her game. I mean, 
perhaps the most famous pop star of her generation. And she says this, I think my biggest flaw is insecurity. I'm terribly insecure. I'm plagued with insecurities 24-7. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. It's always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. Isn't that honest? Isn't that transparent? Okay, truth from the pop world. I'll give you another extreme example. Saddam Hussein, okay, famous militant dictator. Did you know this? Okay, that he actually had surgically altered body doubles. And every day on his schedule, he would have multiple meals in multiple cities because he was so scared and terrified of being taken out. He was seriously insecure. Okay? And he wasn't going to be taken out by a rebel. He was going to be taken out by somebody in, in, in like his very own uh, close circle. And so the point is this. Somebody at the top of the pop game, somebody who has all the power in his nation, okay, they're still deeply insecure, insecure and highly anxious. And so here's what we learned from Nebuchadnezzar and these two others, is that you can have it all and it still won't give you peace. Nebuchadnezzar, quote unquote, he had it all, except he was missing one thing. What was it? He didn't have peace. He couldn't even get a good night's rest. Getting to the top will never be enough. Nebuchadnezzar had ultimate human power, and yet he was a deeply insecure person. And so do you see Nebuchadnezzar's demand? What does he say to his enchanters and interpreters? He says, I want you to tell me not only the interpretation of the dream, but you got to tell me the dream itself. Now, what's going on here? Well, maybe Nebuchadnezzar is just like you and me. You have this like vivid, incredible dream. I had a dream last night, and I know, like I vaguely remember I was in a spaceship. Okay, that's all I remember. And maybe Nebuchadnezzar is just like you and me, and he forgot his dreams. But more than likely, he's actually testing these interpreters. He's trying to figure out, do you actually have supernatural insight? And did you notice this? He gets angry. He's actually enraged because he's the most powerful person in his empire and he's not getting what he wants. And he's being reminded by this dream that you're just a man. You're finite. You're limited. You're another human being. Now, let's not be too hard on Nebuchadnezzar because let me ask you this. How do you respond when life doesn't go your way? How do you respond when you don't get what you want? See, just like Nebuchadnezzar, we're anxious kings because we want control of our future, our family, our career. We have this vision. We have this preferred destination. We have this idea of how our life should play out. And when it doesn't go as planned, we get anxious. We get angry. And do you see what our worry is revealing? That just like Nebuchadnezzar, we would suggest to God that, God, I know what's best for my life, and you don't. Otherwise, my life would look different. Well, maybe there's another way. Maybe there's a way to be freed from this anxiety. So let's pick up in Daniel 2, 31. We're going to look at our bold exile. We're going to look at the life of Daniel right here. This is how Daniel responds in verse 31. He says this to the king. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This is the actual dream. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. 
and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver. You know what? I'm reading the wrong passage. Let's start in verse 24. I skipped too far. I'm in, I'm in Daniel 2.24. Can you guys backtrack with me? Okay, verse 24. Here it is. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, who the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and, and said thus to him, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I'll show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven, and he reveals mysteries. And he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the latter days. Your dreams and the vision of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king. And that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So here's how Daniel responds. We see Daniel demonstrates the faith of a bold exile. So this is another reason why some of us experience anxiety. is because we're coming to grips that even in the United States of America, the church is being exiled. We feel a little disoriented because we feel like we're losing our homes. So let me ask you this. Daniel was removed from Jerusalem and he was taken to Babylon. So we've got two cities right here. Let me ask you, which city best describes your experience? Let's start with Jerusalem. Jerusalem was monoreligious. That means they at least believed that there was one God. The, the pace of life was slow. The, the, the culture was homogenous. And your daily experience was like Mayberry. Sweet and simple. And then Daniel's moved to Babylon. Here's how I would describe Babylon. Pluralistic. Many worldviews. Multiple gods. The pace of life was accelerated. It was frenetic. When, when, when you looked at all the different cultures, it was diverse. And your everyday life was complicated. Which one matches your life? Which one do you live in? And let me just say this. I don't have it on me. Okay. But everybody's got something in their pockets or their vehicle or their purse that has created what one author calls a digital Babylon. Okay, Our smartphone has created a digital Babylon because life is accelerated, isn't it? It feels fast. Life is complicated. It feels uncertain. And every day on our phones through our favorite apps, we're bombarded with different worldviews and different perspectives. Here's the reality. You and I are exiles. Well, what does that mean, Ben? Well, if you're in exile, that means you're an alien. You live in a hostile environment, and you're an outcast in your very own country. Now, look, unlike Daniel, we weren't taken from our homes, but we're, we're moving into this cultural moment where our nation and our state and our city, they just don't feel like home. One author, Jim Davis, puts it this way, we haven't changed where we live, 
But where we live is changing, and it's changing fast. Does anybody identify with that? See, brothers and sisters, Carrollton is Babylon. Georgia is Babylon. The United States of America is Babylon. And exile is our status until Jesus Christ returns. Can I share a quote with you? This actually describes... Uh, the religious shift that is occurring in our nation right now. This comes from a book that was just released by an author named Jim Davis called The Great Dechurching. Can you guys put this up? It says this, in the United States, we are currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. As tens of millions of formerly regular Christian worshipers nationwide have decided that they no longer desire to attend church at all. These are what we now call the de-churched, about 40 million. About 40 million adults in America today used to go to church, but they no longer do, which accounts for around 16% of our adult population. For the first time in eight decades, more adults in the United States don't attend church rather than attend church. This is not a gradual shift, it's a jolting one. Let me explain it this way, okay? You remember American history? You remember studying about the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades? Do you know this? More people have left the church in my lifetime than joined the church in the First, Second Great Awakenings and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. Forty million Americans have left the church in the past 25 years. And that marks two major shifts that we are living through right now. The first is this. Church attenders are no longer the majority in our nation. We are now the minority. But then on top of that, the, the, the cultural attitude towards church attenders has changed as well. And what used to be favorable about 100 years ago and eventually became tolerant, now, especially in other parts of the country, there's hostility towards the gospel and those who attend church. This seems like bad news, doesn't it? It's jolting. It's startling. But our nation is changing, and it's changing fast. But here's the good news. Did you know this? That exile is the most common state for God's people. When you read God's word, the most common state for the nation of Israel and the early church, their status were exiles. Let's look at this passage in 1 Peter. It says this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your, against your soul? The Apostle Paul says the church, to the church in Rome, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed to the renewing of your mind. See, here's the reality. The church in America, at least, has been in a state of comfort. But comfortable times make a comfortable church. The good news is this, is that hard times make a strong church. And the church historically has always been at its best when it's at the margin of power. The margins of power. So imagine just for a moment, if we went back to our interview with Daniel, we said, Daniel, hey, look, there's this great de-churching, and there's the rise of the nuns, and secularism is spreading across our nation. Daniel, can the church flourish? Daniel, can we thrive in this digital Babylon? What would Daniel say? He would say, absolutely. Absolutely. So what can we learn from the life of Daniel? Well, we see this. In Daniel 2, that he's bold, he's wise, he's tactful, he's completely dependent on God. 
let me just point out three things if you want to be a bold exile that we can learn from Daniel. First off, Daniel's consumed with the glory of God. Do you see this? Every chance, every opportunity that he can give shine and praise and credit to God, he does it. Number two, Daniel's life is marked by regular prayer. Now this has become a more apparent theme as we go deeper into the book of Daniel. But Daniel plays three times a day. Morning, afternoon, and evening. And he doesn't do it by himself. He, he does it with his boys, his disciples. And here's what's really interesting. David learned how to pray as a young boy, as a teenager. This is why it's so important to disciple our kids. Because Daniel, what we'll come to see, keeps this habit of praying consistently, praying continually for seven decades of his life. And here's what you'll notice about the prayer. It's not, God, get me out of this. But we're about to be torn limb by limb. God, this is an emergency. God, you got to come through. In this moment, Daniel and his friends, they take time to worship and to praise and to adore the true king. And the final thing I'll say about Daniel is this. It just takes time. Do you all remember last week's sermon? Remember? In chapter 1, he took a stand, but it it was a small stand. It was a private stand. It just had to do with his diet. But in chapter 2, he demonstrates tremendous boldness. And it just takes time to become older and wiser and to be prepared for a bigger test. And so Daniel speaks up. But, but here's the big point if you want to be a bold exile. You can't wait for a crisis. You, you can't just wait for the emergency. I mean, do y'all ever remember like trying to pass an exam and you pull an all-nighter? You try to cram all that content into your mind. Does that ever work? Absolutely not. You can't master the material. I remember earlier this week, I was talking to a guy who signed up for the Carrollton Half Marathon. I think it's coming up this Saturday. Okay, we got some, some stud runners in the mix. But I was like, well, t- well, tell me, man. I said, how's your mileage? You don't strike me as a long-distance runner. And he's like, well, man, I'm up to three miles. I said, dude, you are in for a world of pain. Because here's what you know and I know, okay, you, 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 you can't just rise up to the test, okay? And so here's what we see in Daniel's life. It's regular worship. It's regular adoration. It's praying with his men that actually gives him, him, him courage. Because here's what we do in adoration and praise and worship. We're saying this. My world is changing. My city is changing. My nation is changing. But God, you never change. And that's what gives us courage. So let's look at our final character, the unbreakable stone. Pick up with me in verse 31. Verse 31. This is Daniel interpreting the dream, and he references or explains Who is this unbreakable stone? Daniel says this to the king. You saw, O king, and behold, the great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone, it was cut out by no human hand, It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. 
But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left by another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. Y'all ready to do a little dream interpretation? Okay, let's do it. So here's what we see in the dream. There's a statue. What does this statue represent? Well, it's a symbol of human civilization, of different world empires. This is human power. This is corporations. This is kingdoms. This is human systems. These are things that are created and designed to magnify and glorify human power. And you can actually get a little more specific. Each sort of material or substance actually represents a different empire. So this is going to feel like Western Civ for about 30 seconds. But the gold is like Babylon. The silver is like Persia. The bronze is like Greece. And the iron is like Rome. Now here's what I want you to pay attention to. Did you notice this? about the different materials. Each material, starting the head from the head and working down, becomes what? Less valuable. We go from gold to clay. But they also become less pure. But, we see this as you go from head to toe, each of these materials, they become more solid. They come, become more strong. They, 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 uh, they have more power, if you will. So this dream is actually revealing something about the arc of human history. It's saying each successive kingdom will have more authority, but they will become relationally less coherent and less moral, and they're becoming weaker. Okay? It's saying something about humanity. But then, okay, something comes on the scene. It's what? It's the stone. Now, what in the world is going on with this stone? Because it's not just any stone. This is a stone that's not cut by human hands. Meaning this, it's divine, it's supernatural, it's permanent, it's eternal. Now here's what I know about stones, okay? Stones are the very least valuable. I mean, we're, we're talking about rocks. What do you do with rocks? You kick rocks, you throw rocks, you don't keep rocks. This is something that looks small, it's poor, it's weak. I mean, imagine driving by Home Depot and trying, you know, you can afford a truckload of rocks. We call that gravel. Okay? You can't afford a truckload of gold or bronze or silver. Those things glitter. Those things are precious. Those things are valuable. So this stone okay, seems pretty unvaluable. But it's a pretty unique stone because it's growing. It actually becomes a kingdom. It eventually becomes a mountain and it fills the entire earth. And then there's this really unique timing. Did you notice where it strikes the image? right in the iron. So there's this decisive moment in the Iron Age, which is during the Roman Empire, this decisive moment that leads to slow, steady growth. The decisive moment that leads to a process. Okay, kids, y'all ready to interpret the dream? Okay. Who do you think the stone is? What do you think the stone refers to? Okay. When in doubt, just say who. Come on, just say Jesus. Because Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. Jesus is the living stone. Now think about the mission of Jesus. When Jesus enters humanity, he inaugurates the kingdom of God. And then, slowly but surely, there's this process of sweeping away the old. But Jesus, brothers and sisters, 
He's like the ultimate exile. The ultimate exile. Because he wasn't drugged, kicking and screaming from his home. Jesus came to Babylon willingly. And what did he leave behind? Well, Jesus left the throne room of heaven. The ultimate experience of glory and comfort and joy to step into a world of pain and sorrow and shame. And on the cross, Jesus experienced an exile unlike any other because he suffered outside the gates and he was forsaken or he was exiled from the very presence of God. So what does this mean for you and I today? Even though we live in Carrollton, even though most days it feels like Mayberry, we live in Babylon today. But one day in the future, we will live in the new Jerusalem. And we may be exiles today, but because of the work of Jesus, we will never be exiled by God. One day soon, we will be home. So here's where we're driving, here's where we're going, here's where we'll wrap it up. For some of you in the room, you probably identify with Nebuchadnezzar. You're like, I am an anxious king or an ancient queen. Ancient. Anxious, excuse me. And let me just say this. If there's something in your life that's being disrupted, it could be a health issue, a relational issue, a financial issue, you want to know what God is doing? God's shaking your foundation. Because he wants you to find and discover the unshakable heavenly foundation. He's saying what you're building your life on, it's just feet of clay. It's going to let you down. It's going to crumble. It can't handle the weight of life. Build your life on something else. But here's what we'll come to find out about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar appreciates the interpretation. He's awed by the living stone. He's impressed by Daniel, but he remains unchanged. And so here's what God desires from you if you identify as an anxious king. He's saying, build your life on me. Don't just be impressed by me. Don't just be in awe of me. Build your house on the unshakable foundation. Because here's what we learn from Nebuchadnezzar. You can have all the power in the world. But if you build your life on anything other than Jesus, the unbreakable stone, you'll be anxious because your foundation is breakable. But for most of you in the room, you're, you're in exile. You're saying, Ben, I want to be like Daniel. I want to demonstrate a little more boldness. I want to exhibit a little more courage. Well, here's the good news. As we move into becoming exiles in our very own nation, did you know this? There are moments of desirable difficulty. You ever heard that phrase before? When, when, when there is adversity and hardship that actually brings out the best in you, okay? Being, being in exile, it's tough, it's adverse, it's difficult, but it's usually what's best for the church. Can I give you an example or a story of a bold exile? Her name was Rosa Parks, and she lived just across the state line in Montgomery, Alabama. She was a government worker, she was elderly, and in 1955, after a long day of work, standing on her feet all day, she got on a bus. Now, not just any bus, because buses in Montgomery, Alabama were segregated. And so the very back of the bus was where blacks and African Americans had to sit, and the very front of the bus is where the whites sat. And usually what they would do to mark actually the, 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 the segregated divide is they would put a cone. The cone would say, the white people can sit here, and the black can, blacks can sit in the back. So Rosa Parks 
worked an entire day. She was tired, and she walks to actually the colored section, and she sits down. But the bus began to fill up, and pretty soon there were white people without a seat. So guess what the bus driver did? He walked to the back of the bus, he picked the cone up, and he moved it back just one row. He looked at Rosa Parks, and he said, you need to get up and move to the back. And famously, Rosa Parks said what? She said, no, I'm not moving. I'm sitting still. And it's really interesting. They called the cops. They booked her. She's got the famous mugshot picture. But when they start interviewing her, they ask her, Rosa Parks, why didn't you move? And she gave a two-word answer. You know what she said? She said, I'm tired. I'm tired. And most of the naysayers just thought this. Well, well she's physically tired, right? Or her feet are tired. Or she just didn't want to move. She must be pretty lazy. But do you, know what, do you want to know what Rosa Parks was tired of? She was tired of segregation. She was tired of being judged for the color of her skin. She was tired of racism. She was tired of a double standard. You know what she was tired of? She was tired of Babylon. Because the moment after she was released from the jail, do you know where she went? She went to her church. And she met with men and women who were fellow exiles, and they prayed and praised God. And so here's what we see. The faith of one bold exile, just a little old granny refusing to move, refusing to change her seats, it, 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 it set off a civil rights movement in Alabama, and it literally became nationwide. She was in exile. She was living for heaven. She was fixated with the new Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, Jerusalem, excuse me, and she took a bold, decisive step as an exile. So brothers and sisters, we're exiles. Will you join me? Will we be bold exiles? A community of courageous exiles. Just know this. If you're going to follow Jesus and believe the gospel in the future in America, it's going to cause you to be exiled. If you're going to follow Jesus, you will experience temporary exile. The gospel causes exile, but it also gives us hope. Hope for a heavenly home. Hope for the new Jerusalem. It reminds us that Babylon is not our eternal home. So to my exiles, will you build your life, your foundation on the unbreakable stone? Because when you do, you embrace life as bold exiles. Pray with me. Father, there's something alarming about this sermon because we realize that it's happened a different way and nobody's kicked our door down or nobody's put us in chains. But just like Daniel, we're in exile. And that's startling for some of us because we want the power, we want the comfort, we want the status. And our nation is changing and the generations are changing. And Lord, it's disorienting. Lord, but here's the deal. We've never placed our hope in status. We've never placed our hope in D.C. Our hope has always been in the unbreakable stone. So God, would you help this church embrace their identity as exiles? Would you help us build our foundation on you? Lord, help us get to the root of our anxiety. Why are we so worried? Why are we so anxious? What is the check engine light of our soul trying to reveal to us? 
Lord, I pray that we would see anything else this world has to offer. It's breakable. It's a foundation of clay. Lord, help us build a foundation in you and embrace our calling to be courageous and bold exiles. We pray this in your name. Amen.